you know, so I came in a little bit just to kind of settle in, be still before the Lord, and just watched everybody interact. And I noticed that nobody looks like they were dragged in here tonight. Nobody looks like they're here under duress. And uh, so I was thinking, it just kind of hit me that, you know, of all the different places, all the different things, all the things that may be going on outside of church, God brought us all here tonight at the same time. And we get to do this. This is a privilege to come together around God's word and hear what he has to say to us tonight. And for me, it's an extra blessing because I get to say it too. Um, I just hope I don't get in the way of it. But it is good to see everyone tonight. So we get to do this. It's, it's a privilege. And tonight, we get to continue working through our statement of faith, our SOF. I figure if I use initials, I'll sound smarter. So maybe, you know, so we're working through SOF tonight and specifically focusing on man's sin and its effects. So if you have the, the, uh, the, the booklets, it's on page 23 and 24. Um, I had a little bit of a challenge early on when I was working on this. Maybe not so much challenge. Maybe I don't want to use the word anxious because we're not supposed to be anxious, but I was a little bit. Because we know that God's word is always good, right? It's always encouraging. It's always uplifting. It may not always be pleasant, but it's always those things. It's always good. And sometimes we may have to do a little work to kind of see how it's good, or we may have to do some work to see how it applies to our lives, because God's word is good for every day. Whenever God sits us down to read a a particular passage, it's not by coincidence. We're supposed to read that. In some way, that should adjust or change or something, the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we behave. I knew that going into this study, but when I looked at the, the, the title of this, Man's Sin, I'm thinking, how is all this going to play out? How's it, I know it's going to be good, but you know, I kind of want to know how things are going to work out. I'm like, how? We're talking about the thing, the only thing that separates God from man. I mean, it's the most dire thing to humanity, sin. And I like analogies, I like illustrations, and Whenever I get a chance, I use them. I have one for you tonight. I promise. It's only one. But there's no, there's, there's no illustration that can properly bring into focus the utter dread of being separated from God. It's like, how's this going to work out? But in what God revealed to us about sin, we see so many great aspects of, of his character. We get to know him more. You know, of course, we see his righteousness, which explains how sin got here in the first place. We see his justice, and which explains why he can't overlook sin. With my next sentence, I don't want to minimize what I've just said about God's character. But the truth is, if, God, if our relationship with God was only predicated on his righteousness and his justice, we would be through. Nobody could stand. But also in this, in studying sin, we see God's love. I mean, to the point where Even as God's pouring out his his curse upon the whole created order, he infuses it with the greatest expression of love. In In the very breath that he pours out the curse, he foretells the gospel. It's all right there. It's like he's saying, this is really bad, but if you're in me, this is going to end well. You're going to be okay. So that's that's just amazing. So we have a lot to unpack tonight, um, a lot of work to do. So uh, let's get to it. First sentence. Again, it's on page 23 in your booklets if you have them. All right. 
God originally created man innocent and righteous, without stain or corruption. So I just want to give you a heads up. The first, I'd say half of this message tonight, you're going to hear me say this, this phrase a lot. God is perfect. And there's no way, when we're looking at a topic like this, from the various angles in which we look at it, there's no way of, of, of concluding anything else. God is perfect. And everything that he does is rooted in his character. So from the standpoint of creation, everything that he created is perfect because he's perfect. And we're introduced to that, that truth very close to the front cover of our Bibles. In Genesis 120, I'm sorry, 131, it reads, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now when we say good or very good, we sometimes mean it's not bad. Or, you know, or if it's very good, it's less than bad. But somewhere on that scale, we've got bad. And we're just kind of looking at that in relationship to that. But when God says good, he means it's perfect. It meets his standards. So in this case, all of creation was perfectly designed. Therefore, nothing in creation originally was even touched by sin in the beginning. Not, not even man. Genesis 1.27 reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, man wasn't created to be like God in the, in the essence that God is God, but we were created to, to be created in his image. So man was originally designed with characteristics similar to God's qualities. We read in Deuteronomy 32.4 that the rock, God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So being created in God's image, Adam and Eve were able to be faithful as God is faithful, just as he is just, and upright just as he is upright, because it was out of that character in which they were created. They had the moral capability of perfectly obeying his commands. They were created without stain or corruption and had the ability to remain that way. Now, the collection of these truths bring us to a very important truth. Everything was created perfectly. So, with that being the case, sin was not part of creation. God didn't create sin. So, that, and this truth whole up is, unfolds a little bit more as we look at the next sentence. In this state, Adam and Eve enjoyed a fullness of life and communion with God, delighting in him and his righteous will yet capable of transgressing. So God didn't create sin, but Adam and Eve were capable of, of sinning. It's creator of life. It, it's, it's God's right to dictate how life is to be lived. Because God is perfect and loves us perfectly, he's not going to give us anything that we shouldn't have, and he's not going to withhold from us anything that we shouldn't have. That's just good parenting. All of us parents in here can relate to that. We delight when our kids are happy. There's very little we wouldn't do to make our kids happy. But we also know that some of the things that they want or some of the things that they don't want to do ultimately isn't going to end up being good for them. So we don't tell them not to run with scissors, not to play with matches, or to look both ways before they cross the road because we want them to not be happy. You know, as my best friend used to say, we don't, want to, we don't do it because we want to take the sugar out of their candy. You know, we do it because we know ultimately it's, it's not good for them. And we're not perfect, though. Even though words can't express how much we love our kids 
We don't love them perfectly. But God is perfect. He loves us perfectly. He created us perfectly. He knows what we should do and what we shouldn't do. He knows what we should have and what we shouldn't have in order to live life to the full. So in a nutshell, living life to the full requires obedience to God. So the, these, the SOF touches upon the inseparable truth that the fullness of life, which can only occur in submission to God, also results in communion with God. Communion. Communion is a beautiful word when we really think about the definition of it. Communion means an intimate relationship where thoughts and feelings are exchanged. An intimate relationship where thoughts and feelings are exchanged. We see an amazing picture of the depth of that when we look at the Last Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23, and 26. Now, let's keep in mind the backstory of this. Jesus is on the doorstep of excruciating pain. Yes, he's going to feel physical pain through the, through the crucifixion. But I think really what, what, what crushed Jesus was the pain of separation he was going to feel from his, from his father. Because he'd never had that before. In light of that, hours before this is going to happen, what did he want to do? He wanted to spend time with the people that he spent the last three years of his life with. He wanted to commune with them. He told them during that, that meeting that to, to take the, the elements of the meal, the bread and, and the wine, to remember, routinely do so, to remember what he was getting ready to do for them and for us. When we partake of communion in church, yes, we're remembering Jesus' sacrifice, but we're also participating in an intimate um, and, and encouraging an event, supporting and encouraging one another who's also, con who's also consuming those elements, that we're in relationship with Christ together. So we're remembering Christ, but we're also encouraging and supporting one another. We're communing around our shared communion with God. We're intimately announcing to each other and to the world that this one thing that we have in, 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 in alike is greater than all of our differences combined. That's communion. So now can you imagine that? Keep in mind the definition of communion. Adam and Eve had that with God. They had a relationship with him where they could exchange feelings and thoughts. With God. And, and now they weren't tainted by sin. So they were able to behold God personally. He came down to visit with them. They didn't even have to leave home. He came to them. That's amazing. But as the SOF mentions... Though they were created innocent and righteous, without stain or corruption, they were capable of transgressing. And the next sentence is based on the fact that they did transgress. Despite these privileges, they were led astray by Satan and willfully sinned against their creator by doing what he had forbidden. As I mentioned earlier, God doesn't withhold from us anything that we should have and doesn't keep anything from us that we should. But... Genesis 3 shows how Satan was able to convince Adam and Eve not to trust that. Again, Adam and Eve had what we would think to be the greatest reason and motivation to be faithful, the blessing of communing with, with God. They got to hang out with God. It literally got no better than that. But yet, Satan was able to tempt them to sin. Now, the Bible shows us that sin wasn't a new concept at that point. Now, Adam and Eve introduced sin to mankind, but sin had occurred in the heavenly realms. And Satan was involved in that as well. Ezekiel 28, 14 to 15 says, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. 
In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So what unrighteousness? We see that in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. This is God speaking to Lucifer. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly and the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, does this sound familiar? Kind of what Lucifer said to himself. Isn't it what he said to, to Eve? We read in Genesis 3, 5, he said to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, kind of based on what we know about Satan, doesn't it seem like his tricks are kind of minimal? He doesn't have a whole lot in his, his toolbox. Like his, his thing is, to, is, to, is the temptation to be like God. It's what he said to himself. And what's interesting is Jesus tells us that, that Satan is the father of lies. He can't tell the truth, which means he can't tell the truth to himself. He convinced himself that he could be like God. This is what he said to Adam and Eve. It's also how he, how he tempts unbelievers. He tells them God doesn't want the best for you. If you follow God's word, what fun is that? You have all this around you and you can't enjoy it. You know what, how about this? How about you construct your own truth? You determine what's good and what's evil. Reject God's word, and you be like God. Now, we, we absolutely have no record of this. Don't take notes on this, because I don't want anybody to think that, you know, I don't want to be responsible for what I'm getting ready to say. <laughs> but you got to imagine that this is what, that Satan had, or Lucifer had to say something like this to the angels that joined him in the revolt. I mean, think about it. From the moment they were created, they beheld God's power, his majesty, and his glory. They knew who God was. They knew what he could do. So Satan couldn't come light in his promise of what they were going to get out of joining him in this foolish thing. He couldn't say, hey, listen, if, when we pull this off, happy meals and cupcakes for everybody. You know, and he had to have said, we do this and we can be like him. You know him. We can be like that. So based on what we know, in reference to Adam and Eve, they literally fell for the oldest trick in the book, the temptation to be like God. Uh, now, it's funny. I, I always do an outline when I, when I do this, and Pastor Kyle laughs at me sometimes because he says it's kind of weird. But I use this auto thing, and for whatever reason, it did everything in Roman numerals. And I went, okay, I'll go with that. But I'm not very familiar with Roman numerals. I get lost after like the three I's. So right now, I don't know what sentence we're on. Um, we're on sentence IV. Um, <laughs> all, right. all right, it says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on to. All right. In their rebellion, they doubted his character, rejected his authority, and disobeyed his word. This sentence gives us the basic definition of sin. And I'm pretty sure most, if not all, people in here could define sin, even without looking at that. It may not be as eloquent as that stated, but it would probably contain a lot of the same elements. Rebellion against God, rejection of his authority, disobedience to his word, things like that. But we know that knowing the definition of sin alone doesn't necessarily result in the proper heart response to sin. 
A lot of unbelievers can define sin. James 2.19 tells us that demons believe in God and shudder. So they certainly can define sin, but it doesn't change anything. The reason that unbelievers are unbelievers is because they fail to understand the implications of sin. Even though they may be able to define it, that's why they have a cavalier attitude about it. But that demons and unbelievers don't respond to sin, that they don't grasp the magnitude of sin, isn't exactly earth-shattering. What is kind of concerning is the amount of people who profess to be Christians in Christian churches that don't get it either. As central as the topic of sin is to our faith, it's amazing the various perspectives that some even prominent and popular churches and church leaders hold about it. Some churches reject the truth that we inherit sin from, from Adam's fall. Some churches believe that sin won't keep us out of heaven. They believe that sin only impacts how we live our lives, but at the end, we all end up in the same place. And there's some that acknowledge sin, but kind of gloss over it. Not too long ago, a famous preacher was asked by a famous interviewer that he, he said, you, you don't talk about sin in your sermons. Why is that? And the, the preacher basically said, well, you know, we, people have enough hang-ups. You know, we, we're going to focus on what's positive. It's like, what, what do you mean? Sin is the hang-up. You know, I mean, a, a, a pastor not focusing on sin is kind of like, here's my one analogy. It's like a doctor who gets a, a patient's medical report, sees that the patient has a medical condition that's life-threatening, but there's a cure. But the doctor goes, huh, you know what, why focus on this negative stuff? They have enough, worry, enough to worry about. Let's focus on what's positive. Their cholesterol looks great. Let's talk about that. I mean, now, if, if you know, Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew 28 to make disciples. We make disciples by sharing the gospel. We cannot share the gospel without talking about sin. If somebody comes to us and says, hey, guess what? I shared the gospel today and never even needed to mention sin. We need to find out who they talk to, track them down, and intervene very quickly because who knows what they walked away thinking. It's because of sin that the gospel is necessary. Now, I want to say this very quickly. The gospel is necessary because of sin, but the gospel isn't a reaction by God to sin. The gospel isn't a clean-up mission to save us from, from sin because some kind of way it arose out of God's sovereignty. Nothing can happen outside of God's sovereignty. God wasn't any more surprised by Adam and Eve's sin as he's surprised by ours. The gospel is necessary because of sin. To, to fully understand sin, we have to begin first by understanding or at least keeping in mind the, the person of God. And one of the things I love about Green Tree is regardless of who the speaker is, any, any of our pastors, any of the laymen that speak, there's an abundance of a discussion of God's character. If you've seen one or two sermons or some teaching, you're pretty informed of God's character, and we know that it's perfect. So for the, for the sake of time here, we'll just summarize that God is perfect. And out of his perfection comes perfect instructions for living life in this world that he perfectly created. And again, due to his perfection, God didn't create sin. However, sin is a thing because of God. 
because he's perfect and because his, his word is perfect. There can be no wrong if there's no right. There can be no violation if there isn't an established rule or law. There can be no offense if there's nobody to offend. God has shown us what is right. He's established perfect commands for godly living. And as the, the author of life and all living things, he is rightly offended when we do the opposite of what he tells us to do. It's his right to be so. Disobedience of his instructions is sin. And a perfectly holy and just God cannot overlook sin. God doesn't just uphold justice. He is justice. And if, if God excused sin, he would be denying himself. And 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that's an impossibility. God cannot deny himself. If God fails to be God in one area, he ceases to be God at all, period. Sin is sin because God is God. Sentence V. The man's trespass of God's command brought enmity with God and the curse of death. Satan knew exactly what the consequences would be if Adam and Eve fell for his temptation because he's experiencing those consequences right now, those consequences being enmity and the curse of death. Enmity means hatred. And one of the commentaries I read said, it's a blood feud provoking hatred. That's, that's deep. Now the word en enmity is used several times throughout the Bible, but typically it's relating to human relationships. For instance, in Numbers 35, 21, Moses tells the Israelites that if somebody kills another person and enmity was at the, the, the root of it, then that person should be put to death. But in Deuteronomy, he tells them that if the murder occurs by accident, not rooted in enmity, then the murderer can run to a city of refuge and, and be safe. Um, Luke 23, 18 tells us that, that at one point, Herod and Pilate had enmity between the two, but they were now friends. And we can fill up a whole study talking about enmity. But now, the most important mention of enmity as it relates to our, our relationship with the Lord happens to be the first time that we actually are introduced to the word in the Bible. It's right in um, Genesis, right after Adam and Eve's sin. In um, chapter 13, 15, God tells the, the, the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we're going to quickly dissect this verse, but does an interesting question come to mind when you read that verse, whether you're know, just hearing it now or maybe when you read it before the first time? Does any, what, something interesting in there? Because for me, it was Satan's offspring. You know, we understand who Eve's offspring is. That's all of us and every generation after generation. Everyone comes from Eve regardless of their standing with God. But Satan's offspring... You know, despite all the media, you know, the, the, the books and the movies based on the concept, Satan has no biological children. But he has plenty, countless of, of spiritual children. So, number one, we can start with the angels that join him in the revolt. And then after that are all unbelievers. In John 8, 44, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders, but basically it applies to all Unbelievers, he says, you are, of, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Also in um, Genesis 3.15, God tells Satan what's going to happen to him and also reveals that the curse will ultimately come to an end for those who submit to him because of Eve's ultimate offspring. So let's, let's break down this, this verse. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman. You meaning the forces of evil and the woman meaning mankind. There's, there's going to be a perpetual struggle between the two. Satan is not to be trusted. There's no allegiances or alliances between Satan and mankind. Um, regardless of, of our standing with him, there's no mutual understanding or respect because Satan hates everybody. The next part of the verse, in between your offspring and her offspring. Right, so your offspring, Satan's offspring, meaning every form of evil and unsaved person. And we can tell based on the next sentence of this verse that the phrase her offspring is a reference to Jesus. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Jesus bruising Satan's head and Satan bruising Jesus' heel is prophecy based on actual physiology of the human body. You may find this hard to believe, but I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I've never even played one on television. But I took this class in college called Advanced Treatments, Advanced Techniques in the Treatment of Athletic Injuries. And that was a hard class. A lot of anatomy was in that. So you can feel confident that what I'm going to really tell you is true. As debilitating and painful as a heel injury can be, it's not life-threatening. But a blow to the head hard enough to cause a bruise can cause death. Satan would physically hurt Jesus. The pain was real. It wasn't masked at all by his deity. He suffered to death for us. However, however, based on what he would ultimately do to Satan, Satan only bruised his heel. Through the process of his crucifixion and death, Jesus delivered a death blow to Satan's head, leading to the eventual death of his influence and work. And in the midst, again, of God pouring out the, his curse upon creation, there's this, this amazing oasis for those who wholeheartedly confess Jesus as our Savior. And that's the expression of love that I talked about earlier. That's the gospel. Jesus is the ultimate remedy to the curse that God poured out upon creation. Now, so along with enmity, the SOF mentions that the fall of man brought about the curse of death. So yes, Adam and Eve's disobedience brought about physical death. But it also brought about a death much worse than death of the body. It's the same death experienced by Satan right now. Isaiah 14, 15 says, But you, Lucifer, are brought down the Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Sheol is not a reference to hell. Ultimately, hell is Satan's final destination, but right now he's roaming freely. Job 1.7, God asks Satan, where have you been? He says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. So for the time being, Satan is wandering around wreaking havoc on mankind. Sheol is a Hebrew word meaning the grave or the abode of the dead. This is the place of the lowest low, the greatest shame, and the place of complete weakness because there is absolutely no chance of a loving relationship with God. There's no opportunity for repentance. Hope is utterly and completely lost. That is truly death. Next sentence. Because God had established Adam is the representative head of the human race. His sin was imputed to all descendants, bringing guilt, condemnation, and death to humanity. This might just be me, but some of those churches and denominations I mentioned earlier that 
don't believe in original sin, that we inherited Adam's sin, I'm not sure on what foundation they form that conclusion. Because to do so, they have to completely just erase the verses that say the opposite. Verses like Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I think that seems pretty clear to most of us that sin came through one man and spread through all of humanity. And this truth is picked up in the last sentence of the statement of faith. Therefore, we are all by nature corrupt and inclined to evil from conception. So referring back to Romans 5.12, the last phrase, because all sinned, means that we begin life with a sinful nature without the possibility of not sinning. It's a, it's a done deal. As soon as we're born, we're, 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 that's just what we're going to do. So that, now this is the overarching result of original sin. So it's a perfect segue, I think, to, to move into the next section, the effects of sin. That's um, on page 24. All right, first sentence. From the inherited corruption of humanity arise all the sins that we commit. This statement, again, is based on Romans 5.12. We sin because it's in our spiritual DNA to do so. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we're powerless to do anything but sin. Now, we don't stop sinning when we come to Christ. Did anybody notice that? You know, it's, <laughs> I mean, we continually follow our human desires to one degree or another. But a telltale sign of our true conversion is that we don't live a lifestyle of, of willful sin. Our response as soon as we go off course is conviction, repentance, and change. And that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't even think about the, that concept. Unbelievers have no choice but to willfully sin, sin with absolutely no regard to the consequences. They may feel bad about doing something, um, but they're not going to be convicted. They don't have what's necessary in them to feel that way. Who are they going to repent to? They may modify their behaviors, but they're not going to change. They're not going to be convicted. They're not going to repent. They're not going to spiritually change because they're not able to do so. And we see that truth in Romans 1, 21 through 24. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, harboring idolatry. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, not every unbeliever is running around engaged in debauchery and mayhem. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, there are some unbelievers that exhibit more Christ-like behaviors than some Christians. But whatever good unbelievers do and evils they don't do, they don't do it for God's glory. Their motives are for restraining whatever they do is only to exalt themselves, which is over God, which, which is sin. It's praise the Holy Spirit because really without him, we would do likewise. We wouldn't have any other choice. One of my favorite verses, one of my memory verses, is Galatians 5, 16. It says, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. So the opposite is true, right? If you don't walk in the spirit, 
we're going to gratify the desires of our sinful nature. It's just that kind of relationship. That's just how it works. Next sentence. All people are now by nature enemies of God, living under the power of Satan, subject to the curse of the law, and deserving of eternal punishment. There's a lot there, so let's break this down. All people are now by nature enemies of God. This is the enmity that we talked about um, and that was introduced in Genesis 3. Living under the power of Satan. Now, this doesn't mean that anybody can blame Satan for their sins. Satan can't make us do anything, but he can tempt us to do wrong. Living under the power of Satan means that there's a demonic attribute to sin. In Acts 26, 18, Jesus gives Paul the mission of opening the eyes of the Gentiles so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan. And the last part, subject to the curse of the law and deserving of eternal punishment. And this is supported by Matthew 25, verse 41 and 46. I'll read both of those. Then Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Next sentence. Moreover, the whole nature of man has been corrupted by the fall, and no part of man is untainted by sin. Romans 3.10, Paul writes, As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. The verse begins with, as it is written, which means Paul is quoting somebody who previously said something. And in this case, it was David in Psalm 14.3, who said, there is none who does good, not even one. And I think Paul's objective to referring back to what we now know to be the Old Testament is to eliminate from our thinking the notion that any person besides Jesus has ever done good enough to make themselves holy in the eyes of God. I've never known anybody as selfless as my wife, Diane. That's her there, if anybody knows. Raise your hand. She's the cute one right in front of me. Um, throughout the, the 34 years I've known her, even before we were, we were dating, I've seen her give money, her time, energy, and any other resource to people who needed it. Um, sometimes she gave more than what she had. And in a lot of cases, these were people that, from a worldly perspective, didn't deserve it. And a lot of times, they were people that could not return anything, so no one could say that her motivation was to, to do this besides the fact that they needed help and she could do it. But Paul says in Romans seven eighteen, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And as that is true about Paul, it's true about all of us. As amazing as Diane's selflessness is, or regardless of our strength, um, our personal strengths and the things people say about us and whatever we believe to be the best qualities in others, they are all no good in regards to earning God's favor because all those attributes are tainted by sin. Our entire nature has been corrupted due to the fall. Next three sentences. Although fallen people remain in the image of God and manifest the virtues of common grace, they are incapable of pleasing God, meriting his favor, or freeing themselves from their bondage to sin. And we touched upon this earlier. Their hearts are hardened, their understanding is darkened, their consciences are corrupted, their spiritual sight is blinded, and their deeds are evil. We talked about this too. 
Therefore, all people are dead in sin and without hope apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. Many people who claim to be spiritual or they claim to be Christians but there's no fruit, a lot of them believe in heaven and they believe that God is pleased with them so they're, they're going to go to heaven. The three sentences that we just read in the, the SOF are based on what Paul had to say about people like this in Ephesians 4, 18. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Everyone has one of two relationships with God. It's inescapable, one of two. Either one based on law or one based on grace. One condemns, the other saves. It's the ignorance and hardness of heart of the unbeliever that makes them believe that their moral performance is good enough. They foolishly believe their standards are the same as God's standards, or probably more appropriately, they arrogantly believe that their standards should be God's standards. Um, the truth is they're subjected to the curse that God poured out in the Garden of Eden. Galatians 3.10 reads, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All things and do them. All things and do them. Here's a newsflash. No one can do any of those things. We can't please God and free ourselves from bondage of sin. Only Jesus can do that. So unless we're in Jesus, we're under a curse. Now, those of us that know that truth and accept Jesus' sacrifice enjoy the other relationship with God, and that's one of grace. Next two sentences. The curse of the fall corrupted not only mankind, but the entire created order, subjecting the world to futility, decay, and death. Both the cursed creation and moral evil produce calamity, suffering, hostility, and injustice in the world. <clears throat> There's a lot of ways that we should respond to the meanest, the vilest, the ugliest things that people do to one another. We should be sad. We should be angry. We should be concerned. That list goes on and on. But the one thing that shouldn't be on that list is surprised. We should not be surprised. Not in light of what we know about God and what we know about fallen man. Not in light of the hardness of the unrepentant heart. Not in light of sin that's in the world. We should not be surprised. Mankind can't do anything except inflict suffering, be hostile, and engage in injustice. We should not be surprised. The SOF, the SOF points out the biblical truth that sin didn't just affect mankind. It affected the entire created order. So it affected mankind and also affected nature. We see this in Genesis 3.17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to, your, listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground is the earth. It's, it's nature. So just as we should not be surprised by the sinful things people do to one another, we shouldn't be surprised when calamity occurs. We shouldn't be surprised by natural disasters. Floods, hurricanes, tsunamis, wildfires. Anybody know how many chapters there are in the Bible? Besides Pastor Eric, because he probably counted Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis... I just looked it up the other day. What'd you get? 
1,189 is what I got. <laughs> so now, so out of those 1,189 chapters, the third chapter in, God already told us that these things were going to happen. He didn't detail what it was going to look like, but he made it clear bad things were coming. We shouldn't be surprised. But altogether, the statement of faith ends with really good news. Last sentence. The groaning of the created order reminds us of our, our fallenness and causes us to long for the redemption of all things under Christ. Romans 8, 23 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All the pain we experience, all the ugliness that we see, all the things that manifest from a broken world helps us to stay focused on him in whom we put our trust. It helps us to, to latch more onto the things of, the, of his kingdom than the things of earth. It's a constant reminder of who God is and what he's promised to us, his mercy and his grace. It's a reminder of the fact that he'll keep us forever. Because, because of sin, life on earth is hard, it's ugly, it's discouraging at times. But among the characteristics of living on earth and sin is the fact that it's temporary. Now remember, Satan only bruised Jesus' heel, but Jesus bruised Satan's head once and for all. So along these lines, I'll end this session with this verse from 1 Corinthians 15, 24. It says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Paul's talking about Satan's reign and the power of death due to sin. He's telling us it ends, and it all ends well. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've revealed to us, God. We thank you for blessing us with open hearts to accept this. Lord, your word is always good, and even in this, it was good. We thank you for showing us who you are, loving us enough to show us the, the magnitude of sin, God, but we thank you that you've spilled your blood, that we would escape the consequences of it. You didn't look over it. You didn't just cover it up. You, you took it on for us, not just in general for mankind, but for every single sin that every single person here committed all of our lives, you bore that for us, that we would have an eternal relationship with, with the Lord. We thank you for that, God. Thank you for everyone that came out tonight. Thank you for getting us here safely. I pray you would get us home safely as well, Lord, and let this word go good with us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.